Okay, so it's Sunday the 15th of March, it's the Grouchy Club podcast with me, John Fleming, and Kate Copstick, and I'll now just sit back and say nothing for about half an hour while she trundles on in an unsweet way. It's Mother's Day, she's not going to talk about her mother. My totally unknown friend said, talk about your mother. She said, no, she said, because... Well, you see, we're, we're sitting in, uh, in my flat because I'm very poorly unwell, under the gaze of my mother, who's on the wall there. That... I, I always like nudes, they're very nice nudes. <laughs> <laughs> No, but um, because I'm very poorly unwell, and also because I can hear Britain screaming at the thought of listening to any more about me or my horrible thoughts on everything from comedy to rape, I oh, want ra- to know... We haven't done rape yet. Not for a while. Yeah. Uh, what about rape? No, I want to know about you. Because I suddenly realised, I don't know... Anything that's about be, you? That's because, according to Brister Sawa de Sao, however I pronounce it, yes. I'm an enigmatic biographer. Yeah, well, not today you're not. I am. So, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, taller. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, when I was about uh, 15, I wanted to be a bank manager because it was a sensible thing to do. Were you a very sensible boy? I was a very sensible boy. I was sick over my 11 plus paper because I was so nervous. Oh my God. Uh, and I wanted to, uh, and I could never understand why people are actors did what they did. Because why on earth would you not have a steady job? I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to do. And uh, my, the end result, of course, was I ended up being a freelance in television for about 25 years. <laughs> and my contracts were like sort of one week, two weeks, three weeks. Uh, the, uh, there was a point where I was at Granada TV in Manchester for six months, but I never had a contract of more than three weeks. Uh, and so, so how did you get from... I mean, obviously, the, what, you just didn't make the grade on the bank manager. You failed the physical for being a bank manager. I failed the physical, yes. <laughs> I, I was never any good at mathematics, although I have two mathematical O-levels, but I was always crap at mathematics. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, so how did you get into telly? Uh, and I, were you in, what kind of telly were you in? I, I, got, a, I got a place to read uh, philosophy at Bristol University, uh, and then didn't go. Instead of that, I went to the Polytechnic. There was only one Polytechnic at this point. The Polytechnic in Regent Street, uh, created by Quinton Hogg. Uh, the grandfather, I think, of the Quinton Hogg I knew. Uh, and uh, I, instead of doing philosophy at Bristol, which I probably wouldn't have given me a job of any kind, I did their, media, I did their communication studies at the Regent Street Poly. Oh, my which, God, you're one of the people that I despise. Which didn't give me a job of any kind, because it was the first of its type of course in the country, uh, and no-one knew what it was. Uh, it was the second most expensive course in the country after a veterinary or whatever that word is, course in Hull, I think. So what did you study? What did you do? Radio, TV, journalism, advertising. And because it was the Regent Street Poly in Regent Street, north of Oxford Circus, it was spitting distance of the BBC. So for television, our, uh, our, our main lecturer was uh, John Furness, who was a TV producer and who, I think at the time, was doing Q5 or something with Spike wow. Milligan. Uh, for the radio, we had uh, Tony Schooling, who was a, a, a very experienced BBC radio producer. Uh, for... Um, uh, uh, advertising, we had Helen Bear, but no, nothing about advertising. And for journalism, we had the production editor of the News of the World. Wow. Uh, and then because of these people were quite highly qualified, they had lots of chums, and the BBC was just up the road. So if we wanted a, a lecture on their, say, arts programming and television, we got uh, Humphrey Burton in, who was uh, like a big Melvin Bragg of his time. So we got lots sort of uh, top people lecturing us. Uh, and it was a wonderful course. It was, and it was very practical because we got cheap cameras. So we had black and white uh, pedestal cameras for the TV course. Uh, 
But of course, this was a, a diploma course, so I, I have no university degree of any kind. Never been to university, don't have any degree of any kind. Ah, well, that means you couldn't be anything in television now, of course. Well, or, or then, someone told me once I, I, I was going to have trouble because Granada TV wouldn't like me because uh, I didn't have a degree. And I think that might be true, also because I, I wasn't a socialist whose father owned half of Aberdeenshire, as right. most of them were. Right, so how did you overcome those terrible, terrible, terrible obstacles uh, I, to uh, I, going forward in a television career? I didn't, I don't think. I, ah. I, uh, freelance, yes. Oh, the uh, dreaded. Uh, so uh, I, I ended up doing promotions. So about two-thirds of my, my ha, career... Ha, <laughs> was was there uh, doing promotions, which is trailers, and people think do, do people actually do that? Oh God, and, yes. And there's, and there's about an hour and a half of trailers every every week. Uh, I mean, some of the best television that's around, because you, it is quite possible, and indeed frequently necessary, is it not, to take a half hour program which is a crock of shit, pull out the three good bits, and make a trailer which will have people tuning in to that program, little knowing that they've already seen the only three good bits. Well, I, th I think the, the, the angle was really... Or, uh, I was told when I was being trained, and I, I, I firmly believe the angle is that you never actually lie to the audience about, uh, about the show. You always tell them the truth. But what, what you have to find out is why the programme was made originally. So it may be a crock of shit, but it was at some point the director or producer or writer thought there was something good in this. So you figure out what the, the thing that is supposed to be good in it is and then push that because it, the idea might still be good. Now, you see, that's you back to your philosophy degree again. So yeah. that might have yeah. come in. Yeah. And also the, thing, also the thing with promotions is you can get people to watch the first episode because they don't know what it is. At a pinch, you'll get them to watch the second episode because maybe the first one was a mistake and it wasn't that bad. Uh, but after the second episode, the third episode, you can't do anything about it. So. Yeah, we're talking about the second series of Broadchurch here, aren't we? <laughs> I've never seen Broadchurch. <laughs> uh, so, now the question that I know everyone's on everyone's lips or ears or whatever. Yes, I am available. Yeah. Right. Uh, who did you meet that's really famous? Uh, it was Kate Copps. It was very good. That's really? Good. I understand yeah. she's a bitch. <laughs> Well, uh, you, you get typed. Uh, so about, about two-thirds of what I did was trailers, but then uh, I also did about one-third was uh, programmes, usually as a researcher. Uh, and my, my niche was finding bizarre acts. So sadly, I never found anybody who juggled spaghetti, but I always wanted to. Oh. So, so, and you get typed in television. So I got typed initially doing children's, because I did Tiz Wars, which was a Saturday morning children's So you know show. Chris Tarrant? No. Oh. Well, I, know, I, I do, but not through that. Uh, so, in fact, uh, I always say I did Tiz Wars, and people say, oh, great. And what I don't tell them is I did the final series of Tiz Wars, which didn't have Chris Tarrant in, because he was doing OTT, which was supposedly the adult version of Tiz Wars. Uh, but ATV, not being very efficient, hadn't given him an office. So he and his team squatted in our office, with our permission, we were quite happy, uh, for about, I don't know, a month before, until they gave him an office. Uh, so I didn't really work with Chris Tarrant or really know him. But then later on, I worked with him on uh, Prove It, which was a TVS show uh, in uh, Southampton. TVS, I remember ding, TVS. Ding, ding. Uh, but um, so yeah, so you get you get time. So the, the first show I ever did was Tiz Wars, and that was thirty nine episodes in a row, and they were I think a minimum of three hours. They they changed the duration. I think it was basically um, thirty nine weeks of three hour shows live, wow. live, and therefore that tends to uh, settle you in a bit. Bloody hell! And was the Finding of weird acts, uh, how you got to find to meet Malcolm? Yes, so so I did, I did children's shows, which was Tiz was and a few others less less well known. Then uh, because I was 
uh, I never really dealt with stars. I was never that interested. Lucky in, you. Indeed. I uh, never dealt with stars. What I tended to deal with was uh, real people, in quotation marks. They're and, difficult to find in television. No, not for me. No, no. Uh, I attract them. Uh, and so uh, real people who want to be on television shows tend to live in appalling places, so I never got to go anywhere glamorous. There was always lots of the, the, the bum end of some place. Bar- never, ever, never, ever, ever go to Barrow and Furness. It's a nightmare. Don't, oh. don't go. It, it's th- three hours travel just to travel an inch. Oh, my God, the man who was the love of my life at, at the time... Uh, and for some time after, is a doctor in Barrow and Furness. Well, I'm very sorry for you. Isn't it lovely? That's it's a, Lake District. No, it's awful. It was awful. Uh, well, I went to Barrow. I'd like to apologise to anyone listening who is in and or around Barrow and Furness. I went to Barrow and Furness because a, a blind man wanted to parachute jump. Whoa! Uh, and we were quite happy. We could, this is for Game for a Laugh because after the children's shows, I did real people shows. So I did Game for a Laugh and Surprise, Surprise, things like that. Again, finding bizarre acts. Do you know my friend Matthew Kelly? Again. When I say I did it, I did the series after he left. Ah. So I, I, I worked with... Uh, lovely, lovely, lovely Matthew Kelly. He's I did, a wonderful man. I did work with Matthew Kelly once, which was... Uh, I did Children's ITV in my promotion hat. I produced Children's ITV because uh, the BBC was destroying ITV's ratings in Children's Hour. hour. Uh, so they thought up the idea of having a, a block of uh, Children's ITV presented by a famous person doing the links. And, one, and uh, so I recorded a month's worth of links in uh, an afternoon, I think. And one, one of the people who did it was Matthew Kelly. He's a totally nice man, yes. Gorgeous man. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Uh, you were talking about finding a blind man who wanted to parachute out of Barrow and Furnace. Yeah, and we would have done this because it's quite easy because what you do is you just, uh, you just attach the person to the... To the the person who really can parachute jump, throw them out of a, a, a yeah. plane. And presumably, it's not like going along a road... Once you've jumped out of a plane, being sighted or non-sighted, there only is one route, and that's straight down. Yeah, yeah. much like my career, yes. Uh, but, um, <laughs> only uh, since you met me, John. But again, with, uh, as with most of my stories, there is a, a, a coda, there is a but. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we didn't actually do this, because Neil Edmonds managed to kill someone <gasps> on his show. Yes, I remember that. So there was a man suspended in a box. Yes. Uh, and for some extraordinary reason you could open the box from the inside he was suspended yes. about 40 feet up in the air yes. for some for an unknown reason he opened the box he fell out 40 feet down whatever died and this this, this happened and uh, lwt who were producing game for a laugh thought oh mm. it's very dodgy we, 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 we would never let it happen because we would have had sort of 18 sort of safety on the other hand, the BBC have made a fortune on that clip in many series of You've Been Framed, World's Greatest Fail. Uh, oh, I mean, good grief, the number of times. And at number 10, it's the man falling 40 feet to his death. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so, um, and so, then... So, so then never, never do too much for the BBC if it involves falling 40 feet. Yeah. So how did you meet Malcolm? So uh, when I was doing... I can't imagine he's a Tiswells. Was he a Tiswells fan? Mm, uh, I don't think... He might have been, I don't know. Uh, Malcolm and I can... Malcolm Hardy being uh, the, uh, the, uh, the godfather of British alternative comedy. And now and, the uh, named sponsor of the increasingly prestigious Malcolm Hardy Awards. And also one of the greatest influencers in British comedy in the last 25 years. I know that because the Independent wrote it and I wrote the obituary that said it because I included that quote so it would be quoted again. Well done. I think so. Uh, anyway, Malcolm and I could never... Didn't understand that at all, but well done anyway. I think so. Malcolm and I could never remember... Well, he couldn't remember which decade it was and I couldn't remember things either. Uh, but we think we met in about nineteen eighty. Did you meet at all, actually? No, 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 no. You never saw us in the same room, did you? <laughs> 
uh, You'd have to show me your testicles before I could uh, definitely say whether or not you are the real Malcolm Hardy. There'll be a slight pause now. <laughs> and we're back again. Lovely. Uh, no, uh, you're not the real Malcolm Hardy. Uh, 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 Corduroy is such a silent material to slip on and off, isn't it? I know, yes, isn't it? And then the rib, the rib is my dear. <laughs> but uh, around about 85, 86, I think on Game for a Laugh, he, he was uh, starting up alternative comedy things and he was agenting and promoting acts. So I think I went along to his, his uh, nefarious club, uh, the Tunnel Club, oh. uh, to see The Greatest Show on Legs and various other acts. And then because we had that contact, I booked some of his acts on the various shows. And then uh, in 1989, I think, thereabouts, uh, I got a job with Noel Gay Television. Gay was the surname oh. of the man. Noel Gay, Paul Jackson and all that lot. And, uh, under Paul Jackson. Under Paul Jackson. Under, under Paul Jackson. <laughs> uh, I'm saying nothing, right? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and and uh, so I got a I got a job as an associate producer at uh, No Gay Television, who had a contract to supply BSB British Satellite yes, Broadcasting right. with all their entertainment shows. Uh, but uh, as I told them at the interview, I couldn't do the first month because I had a holiday somewhere, possibly North Korea. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had a holiday somewhere I wasn't going to cancel. Uh, and so they accepted this. And Malcolm said, oh, oh I could do that. I could, I could do that. Uh, and, uh, and I said, don't be silly, Malcolm, of course you can't. Uh, you'll, you'll never turn up for a start. And then I thought about it, and I thought, oh, he knows everybody in comedy. He'd actually managed to do it, probably. So he took your job? And No, no. no oh. so, so I then went to Noel Gay and possibly Paul Jackson. Uh, I love Paul Jackson. And he's a wonder. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Would that there were more of him in com- television comedy today. And yes, yeah, sorry, carry on, John. And I said, uh, Malcolm will do my job for a month while while I'm away on holiday. And they said, Oh, don't be silly, you'll never turn up. And <laughs> things I'd said to him. Yeah. And then they they thought about it and said, Oh, you know, he's got all the candidates. He can just phone people up. Uh, so Malcolm did the. Uh, the month when I was away, the beginning of my contract. And how did it do? And he came in at 9.30 in the morning. He, he left at 5.30. He did office hours. Every day he was there. Uh, and he was, he was an impeccable office worker. And then when I came back, they decided to keep us both on because they, they quite liked me and because Malcolm obviously could just pick up a phone. Yeah, I go, yeah. Anyone in British showbiz, he could pick up a phone. And that was very good for Noel Gay because uh, if, if comedians, especially alternative comedians, were asked to do something by a television producer yeah. or associate producer, they say, oh, oh, oh Roxbridge wankers. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. But, it, but even if, some, if, if someone said, if someone phoned up and said, I'm from Noel Gay, people thought, oh, that's where Malcolm works. Well, if Malcolm, yeah. if Malcolm works there, they're probably not too bad. And Fantastic. therefore, it actually gave Noel Gay credibility. Yeah, I did, a, I did a thing with them called Up Your News, which oh, yes. was for BSB, and that yes. was huge fun. Yeah, and that was, uh, oh God, I can't remember the guy. Nick Simmons, yes. who yeah. was yeah. producing mm. that with Paul Jackson and just some fantastic mm. people. Well, they had very good uh, very good uh, talent because they were just at the right time. Because yeah. I think this was, right, maybe it was 1990, 1991, about then. But, uh, I mean, alternative comedy in Britain sort of vaguely got off the ground mid-80s, didn't it? Uh, so we're talking about sort of five or six years mm. after it first started. So the teething problems that we got over, and there were some uh, proven... Because it was after Paul Jackson did uh, The Young Ones and all that, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, Paul Jackson had done uh, uh, The Young... So he was already an alternative comedy hero. Yes. I stalked him. I sent him fresh fruit every day. When you say fruit? 
I mean, uh, not of the gay, you know, no gay as in uh, fresh fruit, as in pineapples, kumquats, increasingly esoteric fruits. And I said I was not going to stop until he gave me an interview. So after the pineapple, which I sent accessorized with some, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, dental floss, because you have to, uh, he, um, he gave me an interview. That's what, a producer? Uh, well, that was what I was aiming for, and I ended up um, being a performer on Up Your News. Oh, oh, we must have encountered each other, maybe. Did you have hair then? Yes, I had hair and a beard. Ah, uh, so did I, you see, that must have been... <laughs> Well, was there a handcuff deal with Paul Jackson? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So then, at what point did you become the this kind of the, the legend that you are? This this uh, enigmatic Boswell of comedy. I wonder. I, I, Brewster saw Brewster saw, How do you pronounce it? Uh, called me the, the enigmatic biographer because, of course, I've done biography. So in about 1994 or five, Malcolm Hardy phoned up and said, oh, fuck it, oh, I've got this contract with Fourth Estate to do my autobiography. Uh, I can't write it, you better fucking write it. So, so he said, 50-50, 50-50, he said. And I said, oh, no, you, you probably you write it out yourself anyway, you can write it. 90-10 in your favour, I said. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 80-20, he said. So, uh, that doesn't sound like a normal negotiation to me. No, no. So, so it started off at 50-50 and I managed to beat him down to 80-20. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, he actually didn't write the thing at all. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so uh, And it was all done with interviews. Uh, so I, uh, I used to go down to South London. And knowing Malcolm, I used to phone up on the morning just to check he really would be there because he tended to stand you up. And so about three times, I think I'd travelled all the way from north-west London down to south-east London. Great. He wasn't there. wasn't there. Uh, despite right. if I phoned him about two hours beforehand. Uh, uh, but, and uh, people think it was easy to write the autobiography. This is very dull, copstick. No, it's very, not. It is. It is. I'm fascinated. Uh, well, you're easily fascinated. Nobody's ever heard all this stuff. And you're ill. You're ill. I know, but I mean, I chunter on every week, and people are getting sick. I'm sure pe- I'm getting sick of that. And I like, you know, I'm quite interested in what I say sometimes. No, 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 we need to hear more of you. Carry on. I've lost my trap there. No, no, um, you went down. Uh, and you did it uh, yes, yes. with interviews. Is I, that where you honed your technique for doing your now increasingly prestigious blog? Indeed, yes. Uh, so I, uh, I, I used to go down and I would talk to him, and people think it was easy to write because uh, Malcolm was a, a born storyteller. Everyone said quite rightly, very good storyteller. Uh, but um, uh, the trouble was he couldn't remember. Not only couldn't he remember exa- the exact order in which things happened, but he couldn't remember the decade in which things happened. <laughs> now, now he, 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 I said this once to him, and he said, "Oh no, no, that's rubbish. No, no, I can remember the decade. I can't remember the year or the order, but I can't." But he couldn't remember anything at all. So uh, if, if there's an anecdote in the book, uh, I stole Freddie Mercury's birthday cake. Yes. Sadly out of print now, but available Sa- from me at £1,000 per copy. No, isn't it even an e-book? No, no, it's before e-books. But uh, couldn't it be an e-book now? Not without my permission. Uh, well, why don't you do it? Th- OK, P- anyone who would like to read I Stole Freddie Mercury's uh, birthday cake, the autobiography of Malcolm Hardy as told by John Fleming... <laughs> Uh, the enigmatic Boswell of porn, please uh, do something digital and let John know, because I think it'd make... I'd like to read it. I never read it. You never read it? No. Well, I'll give you a copy. For £1,000, get knotted. No, 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 of course not. No, no, not 993. Mm, done. OK. Uh, but, you know, people assume that the, the, uh, the anecdotes are just printed as he told them, but, in fact, usually there's, there's one anecdote in the book 
then it was probably told to me on three different occasions over about <laughs> nine months in different bits because he would remember bits and pieces. And most of the stories are totally unbelievable and people assume they're all made up. But they're, they're, they're uh, real. With, with about one and a half exceptions, they're all totally true uh, uh, because what would happen was he would tell me something completely un- unlikely and I would think, oh, and I'd talk to some other people, and he'd not only say what he said was true, but he'd remember some other bizarre part of the story that he'd forgotten to tell me. And in fact, at the very end of the book, when we'd actually finished it, there were proofs and everything, he remembered, he remembered, because he'd forgotten, he remembered that, uh, the story in which uh, he, he was naked in a raincoat on a ledge outside Michael Heseltine's hotel room and, and arrested by the special branch, and all he had in his possession was, uh, I think, possibly some drink and uh, a pack of pornographic playing cards. Now, he'd forgotten this because this was a minor incident in his life. Uh, and so this had to be added in because it was such a good story. But uh, he couldn't remember stories all the way through, couldn't remember all the details, so it's all made up of a, a tiny jigsaw of, of everything going on. Oh, my God. Isn't life now, you know, and... Life? You call this life? And, uh, life in general, comedy in um, particular... Isn't everything dull and colourless in comparison to life with Malcolm? I mean, it must be like having been, you know, a heroin addict and now somebody saying, hey, John, do you fancy half a child's disparate? <laughs> well, Malcolm was bizarre in that you could, you could just walk down to the post office with him and more would happen in that sort of 10-minute walk than happened in the entire history of the Roman Empire. <laughs> 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 and he, he just sort of attracted bizarre happenings and he didn't really seem to set out to do this, but he did. I think I was on two boats with him sailing down the Thames where he ran out of petrol. <laughs> and there, there was a, I think, There's definitely a occasion I remember where we were on a boat together, he had a little boat, and they ran out of petrol. And he says, oh, look at that big, that big barge over there. You see the edge? I'll suck us in now if we get too close, we'll all die. You sat <laughs> under the boat. Uh, and then, then some policemen arrived who strangely didn't recognise him and, and rescued us. Uh, but, oh my god and then there was another occasion where I think we got rescued by police again but this time it's always oh, you again they said <laughs> <laughs> if they ever took the book and made it into a movie who would play Malcolm? well I thought, I thought Steve Coogan because he's really got the right shape of face the problem with Malcolm is getting the shape right the shape of face I think is right and anyone can do a Malcolm impression because it's sort of mumble a lot and go ooh, ooh fuck it ooh. Mm. Uh, but to tra- you actually need to get the face right, and I think Steve Coogan could do it because he's got like a vertical face as opposed to a chubby face. But don't you think one of the wonderful things about Malcolm was that all the craziness, all the just ridiculous stuff being found outside, uh, you know, on, on ledges outside senior politicians' windows with pornographic cards and booze. The minute you kind of met him and talked to him. <coughs> You realise he he did not have a bad bone in his body. Mental, crazy, unstable, but but not a bad bone in his body. And you could tell that the minute you met him. Steve Coogan always comes across as not a particularly nice person. I've never met the man. But, you know, I think that that was... Not that Malcolm (coughs) needed a saving grace at all, but for all the craziness that went on, that was what stopped it being in any way unpleasant. Other maybe than for senior politicians on whose window ledges he was found. But it would need to be somebody with that kind of genial, crazily genial charisma that he had. I mean, Malcolm would do a lot, a lot of things when you read it in cold print. It sounds appalling. Yes. And it was appalling. But people would just shrug the shoulders and say, oh, it's just Malcolm, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite a sort of uh, a Presbyterian uh, uh, moralistic chap. And I, I think... Uh, 
having it off with other people when you're married and so on is a bad idea. Uh, but Malcolm was always having it off with everybody, and everyone just shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, <laughs> that's, well, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when, when he got married to poor Jane uh, in the church, when he, when he knelt down uh, on the soles of his shoes, it said, help me. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Terrible, but funny. <laughs> Oh. In fact, he didn't do it. Someone else actually did it. And, and uh, but no, yeah, you're right. The thing about Malcolm, I didn't realise until the the funeral because he drowned in nineteen in he drowned in two thousand and five in Rotherhithe, and I think it was Steve Bowditch. Someone said at the funeral in in the speeches that uh, they'd never, unlike most people in comedy and in show business, they'd never heard Malcolm speak ill of anyone behind their back. He'd say to their face, "You're shit." But he wouldn't actually say behind their back, oh, that bloke's terrible, oh, blah, 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 whinge, whinge, whinge. He didn't do that. And he was actually very honest in a strange, bizarre... Well, no, he wasn't. What am I talking about? Of course he wasn't honest. <laughs> he, he felt obliged to play the Jack the Lad character. And I met someone at, uh, when, when his ashes were being uh, earned. Uh, I met someone who'd grown up with him when he was a teenager. And this guy remembered Malcolm standing in front of the mirror in his living room, uh, trying to create the Malcolm character so he had Whoa. he had the cigarette at a certain angle of his lips and he was he was uh, trying to mumble in this strange way and I think Malcolm really wanted to be a sort of Jack the Lad uh, uh, character of South East London uh, and eventually managed to create the character he wanted but he was actually a rather shy man I mean p people read about him and he's this outrageous over-the-top character a right. uh, totally anarchic do anything uh, and in fact, off stage, he he was uh, well, he was anarchic, but <laughs> off, off stage, he was actually very shy and and rather rather quiet. And 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 uh, uh, Malcolm, the, the other interesting was at his funeral, the the the, uh, the church was full of women, and he he virtually never lost any affection from any woman from his past. All 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 the people he'd had affairs with, and they were considerable, uh, seemed to like him uh, because he was a likable chap. Uh, and uh, I, I was—I can't remember who it was. I was sitting there. Somebody was weeping all the way through the, the, the funeral. Uh, That's and so, wonderful. And so you would think, if you read about him, you think, "Oh, he's, he's a sexist bastard." Uh, and I once said to him, uh, "He always seemed to go f in long relationships—not not monogamous, but long yep. relationships—with highly intelligent women." And I said, "You know, you, you one would have thought, Malcolm, that uh, you would go for like the blonde bimbo, page three girl." And he said, well, you know, once you've, once you've fucked him, uh, you've got to have conversation. You can't fuck him 24 hours a day. I mean, what are you going to do? So, so he, he actually always went for intelligent, uh, together women uh, because he actually was an intelligent, together person at heart. Uh, and, and he wasn't actually sexist. I'm sure Malcolm never seduced anyone in his life. He, he, he would never have said to some, you know, 19-year-old bimbo, oh, my, my darling, I love you, I'll leave my wife... Uh, I I I adore you and will, will be with you forever. He would actually go up to people and say, "Do you want a fuck? Do you want fancy a fuck?" Which is by far the best yeah, way. Yeah, and I saw, I saw him do it several times. But I saw him do it up the creek, and uh, not yes, up the creek once in the back room. Uh, and he, he said, "Oh, fancy a fuck?" And this woman said, "No." And he sort of shambled off in a rather forlorn mm. way, sort of blinking a lot. But but no, he, it's absolutely the way to go. Yeah, and and he he would have. Talk to that woman again perfectly happily, yes, and she, yeah. I think she would have been perfectly happy. Uh, and uh, I wish I'd known him better. Well, you're well, probably the only woman in, in Britain who didn't know him better. <laughs> <laughs> and when I met them the first time, I was dressed, I was in character. I was dressed, you're always in character, <laughs> another character, not this one. Um, Madge, uh, I was doing a, a 
a comedy show myself and uh, I interviewed him as Madge um, Simpkins and uh, with grey wig and you know the Lyle stockings and everything and he very obligingly dropped his trousers and gave me an up close and personal view of the famous undercarriage but uh, no lovely 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 man and you see you can talk. All um, this enigmatic stuff, it's just shit. No, I was gonna, that's not my idea. No, the other thing was that uh, uh, he was a babe magnet, strangely. I mean, he wasn't really a looker. I don't think he was a looker. But uh, he, he, he attracted women because they would meet him for the first time and think, my God, what an awful shambolic, drunk and sexist bastard he is. And he'd probably show them his bollocks. Uh, and so they'd, they'd think, oh, my God, never with a barge pole. Mm. And then, like, sort of two months later, they'd have it off with him mm. because he had the sort of charming boy... He had a sort of boyish charm, which is almost impossible to understand unless you actually met him. There was a sort of innocence in there. Uh, and women always think they can... They, someone like that could well, I could sort him out. Yes. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't remember if it's in the autobiography or not, but that was what I always thought was a definitive incident in his life, which was he came out of Boston, as he did quite commonly, <laughs> uh, and uh, he went back to his pre Boston girlfriend's home, and she was with someone else. And he said to me, I was always faithful to girls before that, and after that I never was. And I asked his mother about that as well. And she said the same thing. She said, that's true, that's not a lie. Before that, he was always faithful. After that, he never was. Oh, he had his heart broken. Well, he had a heart, really. But, <laughs> but I, th I thought that was always different. And so, uh, he, at, at heart, he was, he was a, a bright grammar school boy, really. Yes. And in fact, his son is, is exactly what Malcolm was. His son's very nice. Uh, and if you meet his son, then uh, you actually meet the real Malcolm. Malcolm, and, right. and not the... The outrageous, anarchic, uh, devil may care, don't give a shit about anything. Person that we all know and yes, love. Yes, yeah. and, and, and so his reputation is true, but underneath he was a, a, an intelligent, well-educated. Well, he, he was well-educated because he went to good schools, but also, uh, as he spent most of his time for minor offences in, in the 1970s in prison, he used to listen to Brain of Britain and he knew quite a lot of that. And the, the various pubs and clubs he ran, he always had their quiz machines, so he was always very high up. He used to impress people when, when he was in prison because uh, he would listen to, I think it was Brain of Britain, uh, or one of those shows, and he could answer all the questions. And what he, what he didn't tell them was that he'd listen to the, the first uh, transmission of that and they were listening to the repeat. Now you see, what other podcast would give you this, folks? Endlessly. I think Rubbish. Possibly next week we might get back on course and uh, have something more interesting. No, I think this, this has been my favourite podcast so far. It's only because you're ill and you don't have to do anything. No, it's not. I, it's because it's been fascinating and interesting and it's not something that people already know, like everything about me. I think it's been wonderful. Well done. We'd better wipe out the sick now, hadn't we? You should write a book. I think that was great.